All right, I'm going to be teaching this morning out of Galatians chapter 5. You don't need to turn there in your Bibles. I'll tell you why in a moment. Continuing through the book of Galatians, going to end the chapter this morning of chapter 5. Let me ask you a question as I begin. How many of you would say that um, the text in Galatians that speaks about the works of the flesh and then the fruit of the Spirit is probably the most familiar portion of Galatians to you? Raise your hand if you think that. Maybe not very many of you. I'm surprised. (laughs) I would have thought more of you. Um, Okay, it could be Galatians 2, 20. Um, Yeah, I would think for me that that would have been the portion of Scripture that I've um, heard, preached, or taught, or looked at, or thought about the most. The works of the flesh are da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, which we know too well. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. That's the portion of Scripture we're looking at today. And uh, I'm going to approach it from a little bit different perspective, I think, than maybe um, you would have expected. I'm going to ask you also today to put on your thinking caps, because I'm going to be talking about some things that might be, it might be a way that you've never understood what is being taught today. In a new, it'll be in a new way that you've ever heard it uh, taught. Um, Because I'm going to approach it from a a perspective that ultimately what I want you to understand is the the power of what has happened to us in salvation, ultimately. And I think we would all know what we mean by that to a degree, but I'm going to I'm going to help us to unpack this in a way that I pray will change the way we live, for some of us, for sure. I want to read today this portion of Scripture out of the New Living Translation. It's going to be up on the screen for you right here in a moment. And I want to read it from this translation because I like it, and I like the way that he says this text So follow along and listen as I read it. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. And let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. And since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Father, in Jesus' name today, may you be heard through the words that I speak. May you speak by your Spirit to us today. May we learn of you and of your great salvation that you have brought about in your Son, Jesus Christ, and of the great work and deposit that is within us by the Holy Spirit. Father, may it affect the way that we live. We thank you, Lord, today for your word, and we thank you for this time together, studying it and hearing it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is such a familiar text that often uh, when we read a text that we're familiar with, it helps to hear it from a different vantage point, which is why I chose to use that translation today. And I'm going to show you in a moment, I actually think the ESV's translation is a little bit benign. It doesn't quite have enough teeth in it for my uh, satisfaction in terms of what really the Greek is saying, and I'll show you that in a moment. As Matt said last week, the first half of the book of Galatians uh, in his letter to the churches in Galatia was really dealing, it's dealing with error in their midst, and so it has strong doctrinal truth peppered throughout in the first three chapters. The last half, the last three chapters, is much more practical in outworking. But as is true of all of the Christian life, our behavior, our walk, is dictated and greatly determined by what we believe. If you believe rightly, you will think rightly. If you think rightly, you will live rightly. And when your belief system is skewed, ultimately you will not live the way that you should live in Christ. And so that's a problem today. It's a problem in the church today at large. It's always been a problem throughout history that people having wrong beliefs, a wrong understanding of the truth, weren't able to then live their lives the way that God had called them and purposed that they would live them. And so that's why teaching is so important of the word of God. And that's why we sit and we hear teaching. We need to make certain that the teaching we're hearing is accurate and good and healthy. And it behooves you when we teach to check us, to go to the word yourself and to say, I want to know that this is in fact the truth of what is being said in this text. And then make certain that you are hearing which we hope and we believe is accurate and is truth. This passage is so powerful in one sense because there are two fundamental truths that are really assumed in this whole text. And I want to unpack those two fundamental truths today, and they are very familiar to us. The first is that of regeneration, and the second is sanctification. Two big words, two big theological words that have a huge importance 
of how you and I live in terms of how we understand them. And I would say that if I asked each of us today, those who are believers in Christ in this room, what does it mean? What does regeneration mean? You could give me an answer that's probably a good answer. You might say something like it means to be born again. It's, 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 it's to be made new. It's the beginning of the Christian life, uh, bring brought up, being brought out of death to life. That's very true. But I want to show you in a moment, it's much more than that. And then again, the word sanctification, what does that mean? You would have, probably most of us would have a good answer. It's the process by which we are um, made holy or we're uh, conformed to the image of Christ. And I would say that's an accurate statement. But I want to show you something that you have to understand regarding sanctification that could radically alter the way sanctification takes place in your life. The reason regeneration, as we look at this first, is so important, we know this, is because if it has not happened in your life and in my life, if you are in this room today and you are not regenerate, I say this lovingly, you have no power to live the Christian life. You are still dead in your sin, you are still alienated from God, and you have no hope of victory over sin in this life. And let me tell you, the church and around the world is filled with unregenerate people. People who say they're Christian, who might think they're Christian, who have been told they were Christian, and they are not regenerate. And so there is the visible church that is made up of everybody that calls himself a Christian, and then there is the invisible church, which is made up of the elect, those whom are truly, truly in Christ. So the church today is filled with people who go to church and yet are unregenerate. And it's sad because the end result is that it's impossible to live victorious over sin. And Paul is very careful in this text to remind us as he goes through the list of those activities and those attitudes and those things that people do that are contrary to the will of God that you cannot live this way and inherit the kingdom. You cannot live this way and enter the kingdom. What I'm going to do today, too, for most of you, I hope, is dispel any fear you have. Is take away any uncertainty you have as to where you stand before God and give you great confidence, which could radically, again, alter and change your life. I want to look this morning at two different times at how the Westminster catechism defines the terms, first regeneration and then sanctification. The Westminster Catechism was written in 1646, I believe, around there. It was written some 80 years after the Heidelberg Confession. Westminster Confession, what, 80 years about after the Heidelberg. Both of them are Reformed Confessions as opposed to other confessions that many other denominations might have or other sects might have. These two are specifically from a Reformed perspective, which we in this church hold to, that perspective. I want you to see, let's look at this now, how the um, Westminster Catechism defines regeneration. Put your thinking cap on, think, and listen. All those whom God has predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. 
by his word and spirit. This is now regeneration. Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature. To grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Listen to the language. Taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh. Renewing their wills. And by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good. And effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so, yet so, they come most freely being made willing by his grace. Are you following this? This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he or she is thereby enabled to answer this call, and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Whoa. There's a lot of stuff happening, and it's all God. And that word passive is amazing in that text, in that whole definition, because you and I are passive in all of this until, until, we're quickened and enabled to embrace it. I kind of broke it down, and I've got another slide here for you to see. These are, these are kind of the highlights of that whole, that whole text. First thing is you're predestined to life. Uh, we could stop there and talk about that for days. You've been called to this life by his word and spirit out of a state of sin and death by the way, which was our nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, our enlightening our minds to understand the things of God, taking a hard heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh and renewing our wills. And then by his power, inclining us. Now, we're going to come back to this word, incline, inclination. This is so important inclining us to that which is good and effectually drawing us so that we come being freely being made willing by his grace. People always ask, you know, well, if, if, you're, if the call of God is effectual and you have to respond to it, doesn't that violate your will? No. It's still free will, but you're being made willing by the grace of God. We'll come back to that. This is all by God's grace, apart from man altogether. Being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit and enabled to answer the call and to embrace the grace offered, which is all conveyed in the call to Christ. So this is an all-encompassing understanding of the word regeneration or the new birth or what it means to be born again. Paul, in, in the first two, chap, two verses of chapter of the verses we read in 15 and 16, or I'm sorry, 16 and 17, he talks about what we do, listen, by nature. 
And he uses that when he talks about the works of the flesh. Uh, the, the, in verse uh, 16, uh, the ESV says, rather benignly, walk by the Spirit. This is the ESV translations of verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. Okay, we've heard that text quoted. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The New Living Translation translated it this way. Let the Holy Spirit guide your life, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. You see, the word for desire there in the Greek means craves. It's not just, I have a desire, it's I crave it. Your sinful nature craves. This is a much better translation in the New Living And the word sinful nature is a better translation than the word flesh because that word flesh can be confusing. Is it human flesh he's talking about? What does he mean flesh? We've heard the word flesh. We know that. It's the Greek word sarks. And in this context, and it's a contextual understanding, it's speaking of the sinful human nature that still resides in us, though we are regenerate until we go to be with the Lord. You still have this within you, the residue of Adam's sin is within us, and it craves gratification. It craves it. Not just wants it, desires it. It craves it. And you know that craving. I know you know it. We all know it. Paul is saying our sinful nature is craving gratification. And so we see in this text, there are two natures that are opposing one another. There is a fallen nature, Adam's nature, and there is a new nature, listen, Christ's nature, indwelling now by the Holy Spirit. And they oppose each other. They're in conflict with one another. Guess which one is greater? We know. We sang that beautiful song today at the end of the worship singing time about the, the resurrection of Christ and that his dealing with death. You see, the, 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 the resurrection deals with the power of death. The cross deals with the power of sin. And that's the context today. It's the power of sin. Regeneration deals with the power of sin. So we reading from what the Westminster Catechism helps us understand and what the New Testament does teach is that the means by which the Holy Spirit gives us faith to believe in the finished work of Christ where our old man and our old identity in Adam was condemned to death so that renewal might begin, it takes place at regeneration. Ephesians 2.8, and you know this scripture, for it is by grace that you are saved, how? Through faith, and it, referring to what? The faith is a gift of God. Your faith is a gift from God too. Not by works, so that what? No man can boast. It's all from God. Even the faith to believe was from God. And I could tell you, I can tell you 100% that in my 
experience, I know that to be true. So not only were we forgiven when we believed, when we were regenerate, when we were born again, but the craving for sin was overcome by the power of the life of the Spirit who indwelt us at conversion. And it is a greater power, He is a greater power than the power for craving for sin. Now your experience might be that you don't know that yet. But I'm going to tell you, I hope and I pray today by the end of this teaching, you will know it. Not just here, but here. This is what it means to be a new creation in Christ. So much took place the moment that I believed, the moment that I came to faith. I was freed from sin. I was freed from the guilt and the penalty and the shame of sin. Christ's perfect sinless life lived as a man, which resulted in perfect righteousness before God, was credited to me as though I had lived that life. It was, the word is imputed, credited to my life's account. His perfect obedience was credited to me as though I had lived it. And I didn't. And I don't but it's still credited to me. His righteousness literally became my righteousness. This is what justification is. So through my union with Christ, the second I believed, the second I believed, the second that took place, whenever it did in the economy of God, the power of sin in me was crucified as though I had hung on that cross with Christ myself. Because Paul tells us in Romans, the reason that that's important is because he had to die because a dead man can't sin. And you died with him. And because you died with him, you died to the power of sin because dead men and women can't sin. That doesn't mean that we can't sin in this life, but it means is that the power of sin was broken. Through identification and union with Christ, as though we were on that, as though we were on that cross with him, literally. And that's the language Paul uses in Romans. For you have died, he says, with Christ. It's past, it's done. We're talking about all that God has done for us. He says, we know that our sinful selves, this is the New Living Translation again, in Romans 6, 6 and 7. We know that our sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Say that with me. So that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Now, these are objective truths. It's not subjective based on how you feel or how you're doing. It's objectively true. It's finished. Now, the challenge is first understanding it and then beginning to walk it out. And I'm going to show you how we do that in a moment. So powerful is, the, is this truth 
that I, I, think, I think about it this way, that if I was saved and therefore justified and declared righteous on a Tuesday, and on Wednesday I blew it, I blew it, and I sinned grievously on Wednesday, and on Thursday I woke up and I walked out the door and I got hit by a truck and I died, I would stand before God in that instance righteous. The sin, it's as though the sin I committed on Wednesday had never happened because my righteousness is in Christ, not in myself. I would be justified not because of my obedience, which there was none, but because of Christ's obedience for me. Is that a great salvation or what? Can it get any better than that? No. And what have you done so far? Uh, nothing. I said yes as the Holy Spirit began to speak to me and drew me. And as the faith was awakened in me, I believed. And then it took place. But there's even more to this fruit of regeneration. There's more to it because it's not finished. Regeneration takes place, but it doesn't stop. There's a life to be lived in the here and now, and it has purpose. There are good works that God has ordained that we would live out, Philippians reminds us. And that happens as in this life we are conformed, transformed from one image to another. We're conformed into the image of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit's working in us. We become Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. It's amazing. It's the language Peter uses. It doesn't mean we become gods. It means that the divine nature is formed in us. We were sharing last night fellowship with a young couple here in our church, and we were talking, and they were talking about how they had that day spent time with another couple praying and they were in a public place in downtown Sacramento and they were together and they were fellowshipping and talking of the things of God and then they prayed together in that public place. How incredibly foreign that is in our culture to see that. How that, that would stand out so radically now in the world we're living to see, to see healthy people with healthy families actually speaking of the truths of God in a public place and then praying together. Because our lives are so radically different than they used to be and so radically different than the unregenerate in the world all around us. And by the way, all of those unregenerate people are also image bearers of God. But it's a marred image. It's a marred image. We are, we are image bearers, but the marred image is being healed. The marred image is becoming unmarred. That's what sanctification is. It's not just being brought to, back to the pre-fall state of Adam. It's not just being made like Adam was before he fell. No, it's much greater than that. It's to be conformed to the image of the second Adam, of the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that process is what is known as sanctification. This is what John Calvin says about sanctification 
in terms of its relationship to regeneration. Now listen to the way he says it. It's a little awkward, but this is the way they used to talk. He says, I apprehend repentance to be regeneration. The end of which is the restoration of the divine image within us. In this regeneration, we are restored. Now listen. In this regeneration, we are restored by the grace of Christ to the righteousness of God which we fell, from which we fell in Adam. And this restoration is not accomplished in a single moment or even a day or a year, but by continual, even tardy, advances the, by even tardy advances the Lord destroys the carnal corruptions of his elect. So he ties, this is my point, he ties regeneration to sanctification directly. See, we have these little segments we break our Christian life into. I was born again, and now I'm just on the Christian trek. And I'm doing the best I can, doggone it. I'm, I'm trying. Oh, that is totally unbiblical. Of course you're trying. Of course you're doing the best you can. But how are you doing that? What does that mean to you? Do you understand how it happens? Do you understand why it happens? Probably not for most of us. Calvin's point is, is that regeneration doesn't end at the moment you're born again. That's just the beginning of its power. Its goal is full restoration. And I want to say this to you. The same faith that saved you sanctifies you. It doesn't. You don't quit believing. You don't need a different faith now after you've first believed. It's the same faith. It was given to us and we continue in it. And so what this means is that the process of being made holy or sanctified, conformed, is by the same faith that saved you. And where did you get that faith? It was given to you. It was a gift to you. And it has not left. Paul says in Romans 1, we go from faith to faith in this gospel. I'm not done. There's an amazing, a lot of writing in, in, the, in, the, in the writings of, of the reformers about this thought of inclination. Regeneration is often defined by them as the origination of a new inclination by the Holy Spirit. It's not simply making a choice to try to do something. It's actually being given a new inclination to do it. You want to do it. Something happens within you where that's what your heart begins to desire. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. He said, the sinful inclination, the sinful inclination before we were born again is unable to change itself. I tried. I had serious addictions. I tried to quit so many times. I couldn't do it. I got married, and I, I knew what my bride wanted, and she wanted me this, out of, this thing out of my life, this addiction. I could not break it. I tried. But when I believed, it was broken. And I no longer even had an inclination for it. 
Now, this doesn't mean every single evil inclination immediately leaves. But suddenly your desire is for God and you no longer crave the gratification for your fallen nature. He says this. This is what Jonathan Edwards says. He says the unregenerate are unable to be willing in terms of holiness. They're unable to be willing, to be made willing. And he said the reason in the ground of this inability has been explained in anthropology. The inability is voluntary in the sense that it is the consequence of an act of self-determination. And this act was the sin in Adam by which the human will became sinfully inclined. The reason in ground that there is an inability in unregenerate man to even will to do what is right is because of the sin of Adam where the human will was inclined to sinfulness. Does that make sense? But now that inclination has been broken. The new birth results in the power and the inclination to overcome the cravings of the sinful nature. The new birth results in the power and inclination to overcome the cravings of the sinful nature. So if you come to church on a Sunday and you are so grieved about what you did on Saturday and the devil is saying to you, it's because you're not even saved. Your life isn't even changing. Look at you. You, were, you did the same thing last week. You keep having to ask for forgiveness for the same thing. But your heart is grieved. And you're crying out to God and you're, and you're saying, Lord, help me. Forgive me. That is a healthy, godly inclination. The heart that doesn't care, the heart who hides it, who wants to hide it from God, who will not confess it, that's the heart that is in danger. But that's not you and I, because we have now a godly inclination. And so the cravings of the sinful nature no longer dominate our heart and mind. And so the goal of sanctification is the restoration of the divine image in man which was lost in Adam's sin. And it's a progressive work, and this work is known as sanctification. Look now how the Westminster Catechism defines sanctification. Similar language to regeneration. Listen to it. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, now having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified really and personally through the virtue of what? Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and put to death, and they are more and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces unto the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man. Yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. 
Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, listen, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Of God. And so we know too, as well, that we are given the grace to persevere in this life to the end in this whole war. You are not going to fall away. Well, you say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible talk about those that do fall away? Those that fall away were never truly regenerate. A truly regenerate person and indwelt by the Spirit of God cannot fall away because they are kept by the Holy Spirit unto the day of salvation. Have you heard that language before? And they're kept by the same faith that they were given as a gift when they first believed. The whole process is by the same gift of faith. So it can be said, and it is said, that in justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. Imputed, that's the word. And in sanctification, Christ's righteousness is imparted to me. Imputed in justification, righteousness. Imparted in sanctification, Christ's righteousness. Both by grace through faith, which is a gift and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God lest any man should boast in any part of it. So in this text, Paul uses three different phrases to describe the process by which we listen now, the process by which we exercise this faith. Because there is a process that we engage in, that we participate in, in exercising this faith unto sanctification. And the first is in verse 16. Look what he says. Walk by the Spirit. The next two are both in verse 25. Live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Those three commands, indicative statements are Paul's way of saying, this is how you exercise faith in this process of conformity unto Christ. You walk by the Spirit, you are led and guided by the Spirit, and you keep in step with the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who imparts Christ's righteousness to us, not the law. Paul makes certain to tell them and remind them of that. There is no law for these things, he says. If we live with him, if I, we live by him, if we walk with him, if we keep in step with him daily, we are then living by faith. I yield to him. I obey his promptings that are often very subtle. His warnings in regards to sin. I call upon him when I am tempted because he is faithful 
to give me the grace to resist the temptation, the craving that my, my desires, my sinful nature is craving to be gratified by. I'm giving grace to resist it. And the more I do it, the easier it becomes. And eventually you'll find that you will even no longer be tempted in an area you used to be tempted in. Do you believe that? I hope you do. It's true. This is my act of faith, yielding to God, walking with the Spirit, obeying the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, and resisting my cravings according to Adam's nature in me. And, oh, God, may that nature diminish Lord, may that nature diminish and may Christ's nature increase in me on a daily basis. This is why Paul says, we are, you are not under the law when you live like this. And against such things there is no law in verse 23. And in verse 13, he made this statement, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. What are you free to do now? You're free to live for God. You're free to follow God. So we know all of these um, sins too well. We don't need to go through them and say, oh, this one means this. And we all know what they mean. We all know them. We're human beings. And we've probably all, unfortunately, committed many of them. But remember what Paul says is that this no longer characterizes the true believer. And he says in verse 21, he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. The word do there means to practice them. It's a strong word in the Greek. It speaks of the habitual practice of such things, which indicates the character of the person. We're talking about character here. So you, yet, we, we will stumble, and we will sin. We all will. But listen, but now our inclination is toward holiness and toward God. Your inclination is no longer toward sin, if you are a believer. It's toward holiness. Now you might go, man, Rick, I've got some strong inclinations still. I still deal with stuff. Okay. All right, I'm sure that's probably true. We all do, some more than others. My point to you is this, is that if you are regenerate, if you're born again by the power of the Spirit of God, you now have working within you a new power of an inclination toward life, not toward sin. Give yourself to that inclination. Cultivate that inclination. You know what the words, we use these terms very often someone is in remission, right? When, you, when they say to you, well, I'm in remission, we go, oh, that's good. Because usually it's referring to a sickness, disease, cancer. Can I say to you today, you are all in remission. You're in remission. The cancer's been dealt with. You're in remission. Now you need to be healed of what you've gone through. And that healing is the process of walking 
by faith in obedience to the Holy Spirit. So I spent a lot of time today on theology, defining regeneration and sanctification in order to convince you in my own heart of the grace of God at work in our lives. What you have been born into, brothers and sisters, is an amazing, powerful, wonderful reality. For those who struggle with sin in areas repeatedly, I pray you will be convinced of the power of your regeneration life in you. I pray that God would speak to you by his spirit of what took place in your life when you first believed. That it didn't, you weren't just saved and now you're just trying to figure this thing out. Walk this thing out the best you can. No, you've not been left alone. The grace, the, 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 the faith is not diminished. The grace is still actively working in your life. Just as powerfully to bring you out of death to life, now is it to conform you into the image of Christ. And it's the same power, the same grace, and the same faith. Quit breaking it into parts. It's sanctifying that same power and conforming us. So don't, live, don't lose heart. Don't live condemned. Because that same faith will allow you to persevere to the end. You'll make it. You will make it. You'll make it. One day we're going to all stand before the Lord and it'll be a glorious day. And all of the crud in our life and all the things that we have done will not be held to our account. And all that will be held to our account is Christ's righteousness. And he'll see Christ's righteousness in us. Now there's going to be reward, not based on what we haven't done or done in the right way, but simply the reward of obedience in this life will result in reward in the next life in some way that we don't understand fully. But there won't be any loss. There won't be any lack. There won't be any shame. There won't be any fear on that day. This is who you are. Live as you are. This is who you are. Now live according to who you really are. Not according to how you feel or according to anything else, but according to who you really are. Trust the life of God at work in you. Trust the faith that was given to you as a gift by God. It is still active in your life. So stand with me as I read this scripture from Romans 1. 16 and 17 as I close. Paul writes this in Romans 1, 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. Lord, we thank you this morning for the awesome and wonderful salvation that we have been born into. It's humbling, Lord, to, to realize that all we do is receive. To receive it 
And even the ability to believe it has been given to us as a gift. The ability to continue in it is a gift. And the confidence we have that we will stand before you one day glorified is only a gift. It's all a gift, a gift of grace. What grace, Lord, what grace? Such grace, O oh God, is at work in our lives. And I ask today for my own heart and for my brothers and sisters that they would be able to apprehend and comprehend what is the breadth and the depth and the height and the length of the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. What you have really done for us, Lord. We pray that the fruit of the Spirit would become more evident, that the nature of Jesus Christ would become dominant, Lord, in our lives. We pray that we would learn to hear the voice of the Spirit as he prompts us, as he guides us, as he leads us. We, we pray we would learn to walk in the Spirit and with the Spirit on a daily basis, Lord. That we would learn to live our lives in the faith that you've given us as a great gift to know you. I pray we would not try to create faith, try to muster up faith, Try to do something that proves we have faith. But Lord, that we would simply say, thank you for the faith you've given me, Lord. I worship you. I do believe you. I believe in you. Thank you for the grace that's at work in me, Lord. I receive it. I believe in it. I thank you for it. Thank you that you are healing me, Lord. Thank you that the nature of Adam has been dealt with once for all. The residue, I hate the residue, Lord. I hate the residue of Adam in me. May it diminish, O oh God, that Christ would increase in me. And those parts of my life that I have simply accepted as being, that's just the way I am. May I be open to you healing me there as well. May I not settle for less than what you've called me to. Lord Jesus, may you be glorified in us. May you be lifted up amongst us. Thank you, Lord, for your great salvation. We love you and worship you, Lord.